Stilgar, I underestimated you. Such was my suspicion. Each of us apparently underestimated the other. I should like an end to this. I should like to podcast with you, without the demand for the huddlings of sex. I understand. Do you trust me? I hear your sincerity. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe. From Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And today we are on to part five of our book part club. Five. Five. We are. Did you think we'd ever make it this far? <laughs> no, I thought we would <laughs> collapse into failure after the second episode, but we made it despite the odds. And shockingly, we're like kind of deep in the book. Like we've only got yeah. a couple more episodes left. Yeah, it's astounding. We've made it at this point, I think, over halfway. Yeah. At least today we'll be covering the over halfway mark. But a reminder... And hopefully this is old news to anyone who's listening by this point. Right. I mean, we're five episodes deep. But a reminder yes. that we will be covering the entirety of the first novel in preparation for the upcoming Danny Villeneuve film. In each of these book club episodes, we will be covering a roughly 100-page section, although today's a bit shorter. And the goal, of course, as always, is to make sure that if you are a first-time reader, that you get maximum enjoyment and appreciation out of Dune. And if you're a returning reader, you learn some of those deep cut lore nuggets that only we can tell you about. Right. And again, it's a book club. So I know, I know, first time you're hearing this, we would love to hear your thoughts. Email us, gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. That's the email address, folks, since day one. Hasn't That's changed. right. <laughs> And in these book club episodes, we have been including some listener questions. Right. So send us those questions and you might hear us answer it in one of these episodes. How fun. Speaking of. <laughs> yeah, actually, speaking of answering questions from our listeners, we have one today. Yeah. We've got an email from Phil Willis. Thank you, Phil Willis from Sydney, Australia. Wow. Pretty. Yeah. It took a while for the email to get to us. Yeah, that Salago bat took a very long time to fly <laughs> all the way to us. But we got your question, sir. And its wings were tired. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into Phil's really great question, one small content warning that we do want to make sure we say, we might be touching on suicide. So if you are someone who is particularly sensitive to that topic, it would be best to skip ahead just a couple of minutes and skip past the mailbag section and into the rest of the book club. Of course, Leo and I will do our best to be delicate and respectful around this topic, but yeah. Phil's question is related to that idea, and we wanted to make sure we have a content warning up front before we jump in. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So Phil's question is, if Paul is truly sickened by his prescience of the future as ending in jihad or worse, 
why wouldn't he kill himself now to save the lives of millions? Billions? Trillions? <laughs> At the very least, he could throw the fight with Jameis and save the universe a lot of pain and suffering. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's fair. Yeah. It's a fair thing to wonder about. Yeah, it's a really excellent question from Phil and something we've sort of touched on in previous episodes. In that episode, we talked about Paul's prescience abilities, that deep dive lore episode. We touched on this idea and we briefly talked about his prescient abilities in previous book club episodes as well. In answering this particular question from Phil, we do have to be a little careful here and sort of walk on eggshells because we could be getting into spoiler territory for future events that we have not made it to thus far in the book club. So we're going to be tiptoeing a little bit in our answer here. Now, the short answer is basically, you know, sacrificing your life or, or making that choice. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not one that someone would do lightly. And we also have to remember through all of this that the nature of his prescience, right? We're talking about these possible futures. We don't know if they're guaranteed, if they're the only possible futures, if there's some way to change them, and neither does Paul. Right. Paul is as lost and as confused as you might be as a first-time reader of Dune regarding what can and cannot be done. And it's a that would be a drastic move to make considering all of the possibilities that exist. Absolutely. We've talked about before, actually, how Paul is driving this theoretical prescience bus right. without getting his license because licenses don't exist. There is no <laughs> right. prescience for dummies manual out there because, again, this is an unprecedented event in human history. No other human in the entire galaxy, in the entire history of humanity, in the Dune universe has ever had these particular prescient powers. He is the very first Kwisatz Heterach. So there's a lot of questions here, right? And you sort of touched on this idea that we don't know, and Paul doesn't know for certain, that doing something like removing himself from the equation, right? Taking him out of this prescience equation that tells him a jihad is coming would even stop this jihad from happening. Right. And stepping back even further... Do we even know that this jihad will happen for certain? I mean, we see many, many visions and we see how his visions are altered. In the previous book club, we talked about how in one of his visions, Paul saw Duncan Idaho survive. But in reality, Duncan Idaho gets killed by the Sardaukar. So who's to say that this jihad will play out exactly like it does in his visions? There's a lot of questions here. Yeah. It's also entirely possible that he sees events where if he were to die, the jihad would happen anyway, because yeah. there are elements of his identity as this messianic savior already planted within the Fremen, and nothing kicks off <laughs> a movement like a martyrdom. So yeah. <laughs> I think that he's on this knife's edge, so to speak, between gauging what actions are appropriate and what can be adjusted and recognizing a certain element of there may not be a lot that he can control, but we don't know yet what is and is not within his power. So absolutely tough to be the first Kwisatz Haderach, no doubt. Like not something I'm envious of at all. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
And look, we're actually going to touch on this topic today, but Paul does try. You have to give him credit for trying to change the future. Later in today's episode, we're going to talk about a decision that he makes that we read in today's chapters to change his name from just Muad'Dib to Paul Muad'Dib, which is a name he has never heard or seen in any of his prescient visions. So that's his attempt to see, hey, if I like move this lever a little bit, does the jihad go away? Right. So kind of got to give him credit. He is trying. He's just not quite ready to take the drastic step of completely removing himself from this jihad equation. Absolutely. So thank you for that question, Phil. We also then have an observation from also Phil, uh, yes. <laughs> which is after his duel with Jameis, Paul receives, quote, the marker for Jameis's coffee service, which is described as, quote, a flat green disc of metal. Uh, and Phil goes on to say, wait, did Mwadib just kill Jameis for his Starbucks reward card? <laughs> and then in parentheses, only two more spice coffees before I get a free one. Which, gotta say, that is exactly my brand of humor. Thank you, Phil. I that love it. Phil's got jokes. Phil's got jokes, y'all. Yeah, no, th Phil shouts to you, my guy. He wrote a really incredible email. These are only two things I picked from it, but it was a lengthy email full of great jokes like this one. But this was so funny and so true. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, look, the truth of the matter is, right. from what I've heard in the deep desert, those Starbucks rewards cards are worth a lot of money. Oh, Some yeah. say more than a briefcase of spice, if that's to be believed. <laughs> that's how valuable these Starbucks rewards cards are. Amazing. Billions what an amazing solars. observation from Phil. Yeah. And what a great question from Phil. Thank you so much for writing in. Truly an example for all of our listeners <laughs> on how to email us. Yeah. Send us a question. Write a dumb joke. We love it. We love it. That's our <laughs> bread and butter. All right, with that out of the way, let's jump into today's reading. A reminder that today we're covering pages 421 to page 500. So as always, today we're going to go through a quick summary of this week's reading, and then we'll jump into our key takeaways, and we'll end the episode with some deep-cut spice morsels. Mm. Let's get to it. Delicious. So, chapter 29 Paul and Jessica awake and prepare for their sort of Mad Dash Mario Party-style minigame across open, <laughs> worm-infested sand. Paul sets up a delayed thumper, gives them 30 minutes to walk without rhythm, and then uh, the thumper goes off, which of course attracts worms who just can't help but dance to dope desert beats. That fat <laughs> thumper beat is so intoxicating. It's got that four on the floor... Man, it's like Max Martin <laughs> produced it. That's such a deep cut reference. <laughs> anyway, Paul and Jessica practice this walking without rhythm, which is an iconic line in Dune. When the beat drops, they are forced to pick up the pace, jog without rhythm, and then sprint frantically without rhythm. Shortly <laughs> after, the worm shows up, finds the thumper, and just mosh pits it to death. I mean, this is really like, I don't know, uh, Drowning Pool? That's probably the worst punk reference. I don't know any good punk bands. Point is, 
The worm's getting down and dirty with this thumper. Destroys it. <laughs> Paul, just exhausted from walking all funny, kind of stumbles onto drum sand, which, to be clear, worms love drums. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that mm-ts, worm mm-ts, who just finished mm-ts, mm-ts, <laughs> grinding mm-ts, that thumper to death mm-ts, mm-ts, mm-ts. is like, is that another dope beat over there? And their cover is blown and they've got to run as fast as they can. They make it to the safety of a stone cliff, but the worm just about throws itself into the rock. Luckily, thank goodness, Deus Ex Fat Beats, it's distracted just in time by another thumper, which someone else set up. They make their way into the caves and shortly after find themselves in a beautiful basin. Oh, a quote, Fremen place, Paul calls it. And listen, he called it because just immediately they are surrounded yeah. by Fremen. <laughs> it's, Whoops. I mean, oops. Chapter 30. Ah, what a chapter in one of the saddest chapters in all of Dune. Yeah. We join Liet Kynes as he limps, mortally wounded, across the open sand, unprotected, no still suit on him, Right. in the desert heat. And we all know where this is headed. Right. The Harkonnen troopers have left him on top of a festering spice blow. And the idea, of course, is for Liet Kynes to die out here in the desert and the Harkonnens will be rid of him. In just the saddest twist of irony, Liet Kynes, who is the planetologist of Arrakis, who has spent his life studying this planet, yeah. will meet his end at the hands of his own planet. Such a terrible way to go. Bastard Harkonnens. But while he lays here in the sand, he begins to hallucinate about his father, Pardo Kynes, and this hallucination starts to uh, lecture him. (laughs) I can really, uh, yeah, great relationship. I can relate. So Pardo Kynes continues to sort of philosophize about the ecology of Dune and man's presence on a planet and how nature and man intertwine and intersect. There's a lot of sort of poetic rambling here from Mm -hmm. Pardo and Liet is continuing to become more and more frustrated with his father. These are obviously conversations that they've had before. These are remembered conversations that Liet on his deathbed, quote unquote, is thinking back to. Some desert hawks begin to flirt with Liet. <laughs> I think that's the right word in this instance. <laughs> and yeah. uh, as Liet slowly passes away, uh, we do learn that he had successfully managed to send a message to the Sietches, to his Fremen, to instruct them to help the young Duke, to help Paul Atreides. Again, calling back to the idea that both Oscar Isaac and (laughs) Paul Atreides have won over Liet Kynes. Finally, the chapter ends. I like that you use Oscar Isaac, but then Paul Atreides. (laughs) You don't want to shout out Timothy? (laughs) Not until he comes on the podcast. Oh, yes, the two fictional people. (laughs) Oscar Isaac. Yes. <laughs> Finally, this chapter ends with Liet's death as the spice blow below him explodes and some very, very disappointed hawks who thought they just had a free lunch Ugh. have to go find food elsewhere. R.I.P. Liet Kynes. Moving on. Chapter 31. This chapter is uh, triple C <laughs> thick. This chapter is huge. So take a breath. Let's get into it. 
We rejoin Paul and Jessica, and we find out that they were caught totally unaware by literally like 40 Fremen. <laughs> like, <laughs> not just two or three like roaming bandits. 40 humans snuck up on them. This is, this is crazy. Nevertheless, it could have gone worse, right? Because the leader of the troop turns out to be spitting on the table Stilgar. Dude who yeah. loves spitting on tables. It's his favorite thing. <laughs> of course, I'm joking. This is the uh, the knave of Siege Tabor, who we earlier met in that scene with Duke Leto Atreides and Duncan Idaho in that staff meeting. We do hear that the message that Liet Kynes had sent to the Fremen Siege made it to Stilgar. So he's committed, despite being a little bit burned by getting dumped by Duncan Idaho. <laughs> he's He's committed to protecting Paul, at least. Now, Jessica, who's clearly not being given any street cred, people are just like, she's a lady. Maybe we should just kill her and take her water. Right. She <laughs> fucking renders Stilgar helpless. She, <laughs> it, this is just incredible stuff. And again, a testament to the incredible power of the Bene Gesserit. Jameis, who'd been kind of talking way too much, gets his ass fucking dropped by Paul, who just... <laughs> Like, linebackers him out of the way, he kicks him in the throat or something. He, like, chops him in the throat, takes his mala pistol, which we'll talk about in the Spice Morsels, scrambles up and away from danger. Paul is safe. Jessica, having bested literally the strongest Fremen in this room, holds him hostage in a chokehold, which is delightful. Stilgar and Jessica negotiate. She says, you know what? I'm going to teach y'all how to fight like a strong woman. Right. She'll teach them her weirding way, her kind of fighting methods in exchange for her safety. Because, again, Paul's safety is already basically guaranteed. As Jessica and Stilgar have this little chat, this little parlay, Paul, who thinks he's safe where he's perched, is caught off guard by Chani, daughter of Liet Kynes. Holy smokes, yeah. he has a daughter. And beyond being daughter of the man who speaks for all Fremen, she's also very capable, just Batman's her way into demonstrating that she could have knocked out Paul immediately. And by the way, she's a dime, which is a little <laughs> bit reductive. She's wonderful. She's way out of Paul's league. Right. She would swipe left. Paul would like super like, which is yeah, <laughs> a, a, an app reference. Paul is nearly speechless at her glory, which honestly feels very relatable and is caught in the shocking realization that this girl has been in and I quote, numberless visions in his earliest prescience, which, while not as relatable, has got to be just a wild feeling. Like, oh yeah, you're the girl. You're the one that I've been seeing since my earliest visions. Hi, <laughs> nice to meet you. Wow. What a moment, though. Think about that. Like, I've been dreaming of Evangeline Lilly since I was a teenager. <laughs> right. I haven't met her yet. Yeah. And when you, if you do meet her, I hope that she doesn't have a gun aimed at you because that's the current situation. Nevertheless, right. undeterred by a short-range projectile weapon, Paul is blushing hard. Yes. And he is glad for the darkness as he rejoins his mother and they get ready to move out. Back to Stilgar's Siege, Siege Tabor. All righty. Chapter 32. We are still with Paul and Jessica. And that's actually kind of shocking because very few chapters in Dune are so sequential in this way. Right. But this one picks up right where we left off in the previous chapter. So we're still with Paul and Jessica and their merry band 
of Fremen heading towards Siege to Burr. Now, they do camp just a day's hike from Siege to Burr at the Cave of Ridges, and Jessica ends up having a conversation with Stilgar, and it's a very tense conversation. And right. I'm sensing a pattern with her conversations <laughs> with the Fremen. <laughs> she loves them. She loves she those loves conversations. <laughs> so Jessica and Stilgar talk about Fremen power hierarchy. Stilgar here is very concerned that he got taken out right. by Jessica, and that hurts his standing as the leader of this troop, right? He is the leader here because he could fight anyone in this CH. He is the strongest fighter. He's the smartest fighter. And to watch him get taken out so easily by Jessica puts his leadership position in peril. And Jessica realizes that Stilgar is maybe positioning a possible marriage to Jessica to make sure that there's no power vacuum that happens or there's no instance where Jessica has to challenge Stilgar for his leadership position. Jessica is not so hot on this. I mean, remember her love of 16 years just died like three days ago. So <laughs> still processing some grief, I'm sure. So she politely turns him down basically here. Uh, there is a little bit of flirting, but essentially they come to an agreement where essentially they both decide they want to trust each other more. And Jessica makes it clear she has no interest in challenging Stilgar for his leadership position. And instead, they discuss how Jessica might actually become the C.H.'s reverend mother. Right. And Jessica might play this role of a leader without having to challenge Stilgar in doing so. Jessica realizes that, oh, this is the Missionaria Protectiva at work again. I mean, these Fremen people literally call their mystical leaders reverend mothers, which is a yeah. Betty Jesuit term. So she leans hard into the Missionaria Protectiva here and taps into a Bene Gesserit technique called the Adab, or the Demanding Memory. More on this in the Spice Nuggets later on. But she basically recites the appropriate verses and poetry that continue to convince Stilgar and the rest of the Fremen in this troupe that Paul and Jessica are the chosen ones. They are the chosen ones of legend the very legends that the Missionaria Protectiva and the Bene Gesserit planted here centuries ago. Meanwhile, Paul is having some yummy spice bird or something with Chani. And while he's eating, he slips into another time trance, which at this point is starting to become a terrifying thing and not a cool thing where he gets to see the future. Right. Now, in this trance that he's in, he sees a vision of the very cave they're in and realizes that he is once again in a time nexus. He does not see the outcome of what will take place in this cave. He sees an infinite number of outcomes of what may come after. Unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of those visions include him with a knife stuck in his fucking gut. So <laughs> things are about to get hairy in this cave. And Paul knows it. And he knows that the smallest, smallest detail could push the outcome one way or another. It's a really tense position to be in, and it's quite terrifying, especially considering every single one of these Fremen in the cave are carrying knives. Yikes. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> having a bad dream about like getting attacked by a bear, not so bad if you live in the city, but like, having a bad dream about 
getting attacked by a bear when you're surrounded by people who all have bears with them. <laughs> it's just a oh, tough look. Tough look. So chapter 33, Jessica is like feeling kind of safe and cozy. She's like, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. We're like kind of safe. This is this is what this is a great day, which means it's time for a fucking <laughs> knife fight, folks. Let's do it. Jameis is pissed off that Paul just fucking owned him earlier and basically just wants to kill the young Duke. So to do so, he invokes the Amtal rule. More on that in the spice morsels. Stilgar is like, well, let me try to redirect your anger a bit. But then Jameis is like, no, I see you're trying to redirect my anger. I am dead set on killing this 15-year-old <laughs> kid. Like, it's the only thing that's going to make this day right for me. Paul is not feeling good about this. <laughs> He's he is confident that he can take Jameis. But also, as you pointed out, Abu, this is a nexus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... He's got so many visions in his head of just being knifed to death. So the idea of being put into a knife fight ASAP <laughs> is just not a good feeling. So he's kind of, he's on that, that fence of super confident, but also super dead. Now, this leads us into one of the best scenes in Dune so far. Oh, it's so good. So good. And I cannot wait to see this. So good. Basically, Paul beats Jameis. Uh, in the knife fight, the Fremen, having seen this display, are just astounded. Jessica rushes forward to basically teach her son a lesson because, again, he just killed a man. And she needs to make sure, as a respectful, responsible guardian, to rein in his bloodlust. That wasn't cool. You're a gosh darn murderer. And he's yeah. like, ah, damn, that does feel bad. I... Okay. And there's this moment where he's kind of smiling and happy. And then she just deflates that parade getting ready to start, you know? Yeah. Good job, mom. It's a, it's a good move. He's also, again, in an iconic scene, given his Fremen name. Paul gets the Fremen name Usul, which is his secret Siege Tabor name. And then he chooses for himself the name of the hip-hopping little desert mouse, the Muad'Dib. Now, in a kind of experimental attempt to change these future visions of the, you know, Atreides banners over a, a bloody jihad, he says, you know what? Don't just call me Muad'Dib. Call me Paul Muad'Dib. And he thinks to himself, hey, there's a thing I've never seen in a prescient vision. Right. Can I step off of the course of these countless visions Let's see if this changes anything. And thusly, young Paul Atreides becomes Paul Muad'Dib. How cool is it that we see Paul in real time experimenting with his prescient powers here? Uh, I, I so cool. thought that was such a really good touch and a way to show us that he doesn't really know what he's doing, right? He, he's driving yeah. this bus, but he doesn't have his license. And... <laughs> He's just experimenting, you know? Like, what does this button do? What if I changed my name to Paul Muad'Dib instead of Muad'Dib from my visions? It's it's interesting to see him play with time in this way. Interesting and terrifying. Like, right, the right. fact that a, such a small change, Muad'Dib versus Paul Muad'Dib, could change the entire face of the future. Terrifying to think about. I mean, also cool that he's actively approaching the problem of not knowing, right? Like, 
let's not take for granted. He doesn't know how prescience works. He could just go, well, that's terrifying. I'm not going to rely on it. I'm going to just do my best. No, he's figuring out the rules. He's experimenting with mechanics. Is it a high-risk game? Absolutely. But the rewards are limitless or maybe as limitless as the future. (laughs) Right. Just like gambling kids. So that wraps up. (laughs) Just like. uh. (laughs) (laughs) So that wraps up today's section. Like we said, a bit of a shorter section, but so jam packed with information. So much to talk about, not to mention an amazing knife fight, which you and I just cannot wait to see on screen. Ah! It's going to be great. It will be awesome. Now that we've gotten through the summary, we're going to talk about our key takeaways, starting with the dream of a green Arrakis. But before that, we're going to take a quick break. So stick around. We'll be right back to explore the musings of Pardo Kynes. Okay, so let's get into our takeaway section. Because it's a shorter section today, instead of three takeaways, we just have two. So takeaway number one, the dream of a green Arrakis. This is honestly maybe one of the most important things we learn in this section, which is the truth about what Kynes and the Fremen are up to on Arrakis. There have been little hints thus far in the book that there is more going on Arrakis than meets the eye. Here, the curtain finally starts to part and we get a peek at what is actually happening on this planet and what the Fremen are actually up to. One of our earliest hints of what's going on here is actually when Paul and Jessica escape the worm and come across that Fremen basin in that first chapter in today's section. Quote, spreading away in front of her stretched desert growth, bushes, cacti, tiny clumps of leaves, all trembling in the moonlight. End quote. Beautiful. And Jessica looks out over it and comments how, quote, there would have to be people for this many plants to survive, end quote. So there we have it, our first major hint that there's more going on here on Arrakis. This basin is a garden yeah. in the middle of the deep desert. What are the Fremen doing out here? And do they have some fresh grown parsley for me? <laughs> it's so good in spiced tea. it's great because this is the show before the tell right we are seeing these little water capturing desert plant things in this chapter and then the next chapter has kinds talking to kinds about basically the strategy that pardo kinds had enacted on arrakis now again his father's hallucination says quote our first goal on arrakis is grassland provinces We will start with these mutated poverty grasses. When we have moisture locked in grasslands, we'll move on to start upland forests, then a few open bodies of water, small at first, and situated along lines of prevailing winds with wind trap moisture precipitators spaced in the lines to recapture what the wind steals. End quote. Wow. Man, uh... Clearly, someone took a class in ecology because that's, <laughs> that's a dense, I, every other word I was like, I think I know what this means, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. But folks, Pardo Kynes has a plan and uh, 
it's clearly in the process. It's clearly happening. Right. I mean, forests, bodies of water. <laughs> Open bodies of water. On yeah. Arrakis. Yeah. On a planet that is entirely desert. So dry. So Just dry. dry. Heat. <laughs> the sunscreen economy is booming all the time on this planet. Ice cream doesn't exist. <laughs> Too hot. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. This is Pardo Kynes' dream to right. change the face of Arrakis entirely, to create a, a completely different planet. Right. That's full of lush land with grass and open water. Like that's that's wild. That to me, Leo, seems mighty ambitious. <laughs> yeah, to say the <laughs> least. I think I think Abu, it is a it is ambitious. That's just an ambitious plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and Daddy Kinds here continues, <laughs> quote, yeah. We must do a thing on Arrakis never before attempted for an entire planet. We must use man as a constructive ecological force, inserting adapted terraform life, a plant here, an animal there, a man in that place, to transform the water cycle, to build a new kind of landscape. Pardo Kynes here is admitting this has never been attempted before. This is unprecedented. I also can't help but think about real world examples of like, we're going to introduce this pest controlling, you know, foreign species to the island. Oh, no, the island's covered in frogs. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes, yeah. it goes wrong so often with even just one or two elements. The idea, the audacity of going that whole planet. This is good. I've got this. But. I guess there's really only uphill <laughs> when you're working with Arrakis. Even covered in frogs, they'd be like, oh, this is better. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is, there's a lot of food now. Frog legs, frog leg gumbo <laughs> off the charts. Yum. A delicacy. Yum. Especially with some spice melange. Mm, get those yeah. time trance legs. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, we joke, but Arrakis does have its own ecological balance, right? Right. And you yes. have to respect that balance. And that's something that Pardo Kynes hits on here as he lectures to his dying son. <laughs> right. Bad bad timing, but but good yeah. words. Yeah, yeah bad, bad timing for a great lesson. It's a mixed bag. <laughs> yeah. He continues actually philosophizing here as he's lecturing Liette about man's place in nature. And what's funny is you kind of start to feel that this chapter gets a bit meta and you, right. I almost start to get the sense that Frank Herbert himself is doing a little bit of lecturing here, maybe lecturing us as the reader. And that's even more interesting when you look into Frank Herbert himself and you learn about his strong interest in environmental issues and a lot of the ecological messaging that Pardo Kynes is philosophizing about here to Liette echoes many of Frank's own beliefs, too. You even found, Abu, this incredible interview with Frank Herbert where he's talking about, and God, this is like 40 years ago, which is a bad sign, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. where he's saying, we need to stop using fossil fuels. We need to switch to renewables ASAP. I, I'm a believer in the high energy life. I just say we have to shift from non-renewable energy to renewable energy, and we have to start taking the steps now. We really do have to start taking those steps now. Yeah, it's it's just so interesting to read Dune in 2021 as a millennial sort of facing down 
a very real climate crisis, right? Yeah. And the it's messaging so here hot. from Pardo Kynes <laughs> is it's so hot. Oh my God. It's New York so has hot. been so hot. It's just a swamp. What is this? <laughs> it's gross. Yeah. But it, it, it's just so cool that this messaging is evergreen, which feels like a bit of a ironic word to use there. But right. this messaging from Pardo Kynes and from Frank Herbert himself it, throughout the entire Dune series is so important and relevant even today, even now. 40 years after the book came out. Pardot Kynes continues in this section with one of my favorite quotes. He says, Men and their works have been a disease on the surface of their planet before now. You cannot go on forever stealing what you need without regard for those who come after. The physical qualities of a planet are written into its economic and political record. End quote. Ugh. Boy, wow. that's a thesis if I have ever heard one. Yeah incredible that is so core to the themes in the dune saga yeah i mean clearly a man of, of principle now he being a man of principle of course believes in the dream of a green arrakis but he's an off-worlder he's a dude who came to arrakis and is like uh uh it's hot i don't <laughs> like that make it less that make it less hot and dry to dry heat don't like it i want ice cream folks right why do the people of Arrakis, who, are, who have adapted, who have built their entire cultures around, you know, the challenges of this deep desert lifestyle, why do they believe in his dream? Uh, you know, we do get some of that here. Yeah, Pardo explains how he sold his vision to the Fremen people, how he gave them something to believe in. Quote, the masses of Arrakis will know that we work to make the land flow with water. Most of them, of course, will have only a semi-mystical understanding of how we intend to do this. Let them think anything they wish, as long as they believe in us, end quote. I love that so much. Love Just that. A pragmatic approach to idealism, to say, we need to get this machine rolling. It doesn't really matter if everyone on board knows how the engine works. Right. They just got to believe that this train is moving forward. and. As long as it is, we're good. It's, oh, I, I love it. Oh. Yeah, so good. And again, it shows how just how brilliant Pardo Kynes was. This also leads us into one of my favorite quotes, which is just, again, kind of like a single paragraph thesis statement for what could be a four-year degree, degree program. <laughs> Quote, religion and law among our masses must be one and the same. An act of disobedience must be a sin and require religious penalties. This will have the dual benefit of bringing both greater obedience and greater bravery. We must depend not so much on the bravery of individuals, you see, as upon the bravery of a whole population, end quote. Religion! Ah, uh, religion, and treating religion and law as the same. God, that's relevant. <laughs> that's uh. so relevant to... <laughs> All of Earth's cultures and this idea of disobedience from law being religious sin, man, I think without even having a background in history, we can all probably think of a few times that that's happened very problematically. Yeah. But here Pardo's saying, this is how you do it. This is how you move mountains. Exactly. This is how you get the Fremen to not only believe 
in your dream of a green Arrakis, but to fanatically believe it, to make it their entire culture to aim towards this goal, to believe in it. It's easy to understand how the Fremen could believe in this dream, right? Like a people that have yeah. never seen an ocean would love to see an ocean. A people yeah. that live and die by their water discipline would love to relax in a hot tub, you know? Yeah. That part is not so ice hard cream. to believe. Ice cream? Like, ice everybody cream. likes ice cream. It's great. I've met some people who don't like ice cream. I don't really talk to them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, not worth related talking to, to the ice frankly. cream thing, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So that part's easy to believe, right? Like, the initial sales pitch, sure, you sold one person, you sold two people, they like this idea. How do you sell an entire population and then also sell them on the fact that they will never live to see it and their grandchildren may never live to see it? it it's incredible to think how good a salesperson Pardo Kynes must have been because he got the entire population of Fremen to buy in. And we have proof of that because in a later chapter in that scene where Jessica and Stilgar are talking, Stilgar mentions that the Fremen actually pay the guild these massive spice bribes to keep satellites out of the sky so that, quote, none may spy what we do to the face of Arrakis, end quote. Which, by the way, remember in like chapter two, <laughs> chapter three, people are going, well, why are there no weather satellites? Here we have the exact, we now know who the other bargaining party is. Oh, it's all of the Fremen. <laughs> it's every Fremen, the people who it seemed to have a, a very uh, a control over spice somehow. And we actually talked about that on this very podcast. We talked about the mysteries of Arrakis and one of the biggest mysteries being why satellites aren't allowed over the deep desert. Now we know. Right. And Jessica asks Stilgar what exactly he means by that. What does he mean by changing the face of Arrakis? And Stilgar replies, quote, we change it slowly, but with certainty to make it fit for human life. Our generation will not see it, nor our children, nor our children's children, nor the grandchildren of their children. But it will come. Open water and tall green plants and people walking freely without still suits. End quote. Wow. Yeah. Holy smokes. The fact that Pardo Kynes could sell these people on a dream that they will not see for generations. And it does occur to me that the way he's talking about this, it's not a calculated thing. He's not going, I know for a certainty that the great, 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 great grandchildren <laughs> will see this. Right. I, I hear this as, I am not going to see it. I can't guarantee anyone I know is going to see it, but that's not the point. The point is for the people, for the planet. I mean, again, th this quote almost sounds religious right yeah nor our children nor our children's children nor the grandchildren of their children like that to me rings a very religious tone and also speaks he said to this before <laughs> <laughs> right this isn't the first time he said these words <laughs> exactly and it it also almost hits me as like to your point of he doesn't know exactly when stilgar probably doesn't know the science behind this ecological change he just believes in this dream, right? just as Pardo predicted. Not everyone will know what exactly is happening, you know, the science behind it, the ecological changes taking place. 
but they will believe in the dream and they will believe that their children's 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 children will no longer have to wear still suits and will walk yeah. across grasslands. I mean, that's an incredible level of discipline from these people. A discipline that, frankly, we actual humans right now don't have. Right. Like when we talk about the climate crisis, people talk about how we need to create a better future for our kids, for our grandchildren, for our future generations. If we use up our planet now, they will have nothing left. And people ignore that. Right. And the Fremen are a culture that have bought into it. Perdoe Kynes sold that dream, used religion as a tool to build a culture around this dream. And it, it, this quote always floors me. Just the fact that Stilgard knows he will never see the thing he is dedicating his entire life to and dedicating his people's entire lives to. All right, let's wrap up this first takeaway because Daddy Kynes has one last piece of advice, and this one is ominous. Yeah. Near the end of this chapter, when Liet thinks about Paul's role in the Fremen dream, again, Liet is sold on the Atreides. He believes in them. When Liet thinks about this, Hallucination Pardo Kynes warns, quote, No more terrible disaster could befall your people than for them to fall into the hands of a hero. End quote. Iconic. Iconic. <laughs> what an incredible line. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. A central theme in this book. On top of the ecological themes throughout the saga, one of the biggest messages that Frank is warning against in his novels is the dangers of charismatic leaders, the dangers of messiahs and believing too much in them. By the way... Also, very much at the current meta of, like, superhero stories, you know, today, when you look at The Boys and you look at Invincible on Amazon and you look at this idea of when you have a hero, someone who is revered and given license to do whatever, will they always be a just embodiment of, you know, the Superman, the archaic kind of Boy Scout does no wrong guy? Right. I mean, will they be Captain America or will they be Homelander? Like, yikes. <laughs> Yo, exactly. And to think that Frank's writing this book in like the 60s, granted, again, none of these are like brand new ideas, but very relevant to today's media. This idea of heroes are not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of what makes Dune so special. The ideas in the book are relevant no matter when you read them and always will be. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of <laughs> saviors, <laughs> let's get into takeaway number two. Yes. Defend fast, attack slow, and never challenge Polydrates to a knife fight, folks. <laughs> it's going to fucking kill you. Uh, especially now that he's, you know, gotten his, his little toesies wet. Yeah. Man, this fight between Paul and Jameis is incredible and full of so much nuance that it's really worth exploring beat by beat. So that's what we're going to do. Let's start by setting the scene. Okay. Paul, Paul Atreides, 15 years old, mm -hmm. countless visions. This kid's been dreaming for years. He's trained to fight. That's good. But with shields, which is mm. a very strange thing. 
And Jameis is a fucking vet Fremen warrior who's just, <laughs> you know, gear. he's confident. He's got the knife. He knows what he's doing. He knows all of the tricks. Doesn't fight with shields. Paul is using an unfamiliar weapon, a Chris knife. And let us not forget, Paul has never fucking murdered someone. He's 15. <laughs> he's, 15. <laughs> he's 15. And this is a fight to the death. Uh, he tries hilariously for it to not be. And they're like, no, no, it is. Yeah. Like, and that's just a short list of the things that are working against Paul in this fight as he steps right. up to the plate against Jameis. On top of the fact that, like, lost in the desert, my guy's probably hungry. He probably has to pee. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is a very tense moment, and there are a lot of things working against Paul. The odds he just are met against Johnny. him. He just met Johnny, he just so met he's, Johnny. he's a little distracted. <laughs> he's like, okay, okay, I know I should be focusing on the knife fight, but, like, she's so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica's like, Paul, focus. focus. <laughs> he's like, I am. She's beautiful. Oh, on the knife fight. Sorry. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. 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 God, on the flip side, though, likes my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Remember, he's a teenage boy. Does she like hawks? I hope she likes hawks. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the flip side, there are some things working in Paul's favor in this fight. Right. Like you mentioned, he has been trained to fight. And in fact, he's been trained by some of the best fighters in the entire galaxy. We're talking Duncan motherfucking Idaho. We're talking <laughs> yeah. Gurney Halleck. These guys are the best of the best, and he has been trained by them since birth. So he knows his way around a fight, even if he hasn't killed someone. On top of that, he has incredible physical and mental control thanks to all of the Benny Gesserit training that his mother has been giving him since birth. Right. He knows some level of Prana Bindu control over his muscles and his body. He uses the Litany Against Fear to calm his anxiety, a mental control tool. So he, he has these tools. On top of that, Chani, the beautiful girl he's extremely distracted by at this moment. I hope she likes Hawks. Gave him some last minute pointers here. Right. Quote, Jameis turns to the right with his knife after a parry. It's a habit in him we've all seen. And he'll aim for the eyes to catch a blink in which to slash you. And he can fight either hand. Look out for a knife shift. And I'm single, baby. All of these tips <laughs> are... And I definitely like hawks. Hawks are great. <laughs> exactly. My favorite desert bird. And we see these last minute pointers that Chani whispers into his ear come into play in the fight. So these are some of the things that are working in Paul's favor. Again, a much smaller list than the things that are working against him, but right. still things that might give him an edge in the coming fight. 100%. Yeah. So the the fight begins. The knife fight begins like any good knife fight, mm -hmm. right? We all know the beats. They're circling each other. They're down to their loincloths. And one of them's just talking so much shit. <laughs> <laughs> Paul is totally understandably afraid. And he's kind of reciting this litany against fear. Now, nothing in his visions of this moment, his countless prescient visions of this cave, this moment, have shown him sort of the path. None of them have shown him exactly what to do. So really, again, despite his prescient powers, despite being the chosen one, <laughs> the future is really hanging in the balance here. He could die just so easily. And here's a quote to really highlight this 
And as he's thinking about this, and this is sort of the foundation of some of his anxiety, quote, anything could tip the future here, he realized. Someone coughing in the troop of watchers, a distraction, a variation in a glow globe's brilliance, a deceptive shadow, end quote. Wow. Oh, the smallest beautiful. thing could end with a knife in Paul Atreides' side. Just if, if Paul has crushes like I have crushes, Chani taking a breath. That would be distracting. I'm like, oh, <laughs> she's breathing. Huh. Oh, oh, Wonderful. Man. Oh, I'm dead. <laughs> died. <laughs> exactly. Shit. Honestly, the oh. biggest distraction in this cave right now. Now, Jamis, with a snarl, goes on the offensive. Quote, I'll sheath my knife in your blood. <laughs> he went to bad guy school for talking. Yeah, <laughs> That's he definitely did. A, he's a villain. He's like, oh. I got a, I actually got my undergraduate in being uh, talking like a villain. So <laughs> yes. That's a, Classic uh, villain line. Graduated with honors. It was great. <laughs> now, at the start of the fight, Paul is able to dodge Jameis's attacks, but he can't seem to land a counterattack. And there's a reason for this. And Jessica, watching this fight take place, recognizes this weakness in Paul, something that he has already thought about. The fact that his training was with shields. He's only been right. trained to fight with and against shielded opponents. So that means he's quick on defense and slow on attack. Because with a shield, you got to dodge quickly, but then you attack slowly because, again, a shield is a kinetic barrier that would block any attack that came in too fast, any movement that came in too fast. That, of course, works well against a shielded opponent, but here... In a flesh and blood fight, it's giving him a disadvantage. Right. He's able to dodge the attacks quickly enough, but he can't counter quick enough to land a blow. He just doesn't have that instinct. Now, Stilgar, I found this really funny. <laughs> Stilgar is like hilariously confused by how the fight is going. Because at this moment, yeah. you can imagine Paul is just sort of easily jumping around Jameis, but can't land a blow back. And Stilgar's like, the fuck? Like... <laughs> it looks like Paul's got the edge here. Why isn't he just finishing this fight? He turns to Jessica and says, quote, is your son playing with that poor fool? And then quickly you... before Jessica can answer, because he, he's like, oh, shit, shit, shit. You're not supposed to talk. He's like, no, 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 right, don't talk. Right. Don't talk. Don't talk. Don't answer that. But it's funny that I imagine like Stilgar is like so confused by this fight at this moment that he loses his composure and turns to her to talk <laughs> and forgets she's not supposed to. It's so funny that he forgot. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> seconds ago, he was like, do not open your mouth again. And then he's watching this fight and he's like, Psst, hey, hey what? what the fuck is happening with fuck? this fucking fight? This is crazy. <laughs> oh, shit. Sorry. Right. That whole thing I said. Uh, okay. Yeah. Still your tongue, witch. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I found that really funny. It's a, it's a bit of a throwaway line, but it's cute that Stilgar is yeah. like so in this fight that he is forgetting the rules. <laughs> He needs a commentator. He needs a commentator for this knife fight. <laughs> right. Now, eventually, during the fight, using one of the tips that Chani gave him about how Jameis likes to lean right, Paul is able to land a blow on Jameis's knife hand. And it's a blow that hurts. Yeah. At this point, Paul does what any honorable duke is trained to do. He asks Jameis to yield. And Stilgar jumps in here. He's... You know, he's focused again. He remembers all the rules. <laughs> he's not distracted right. anymore. He says, <laughs> quote, there can be no yielding in the Tahati challenge. Death is the test of it. 
end quote. Yikes. Ugh. This is the moment where Paul realizes, oh shit, this is not a training ground fight. This is a fight to the death. I'm about to murder or be murdered. Right. <laughs> are the two possibilities. The only possibilities here. Right. So in this moment, when Paul learns that this is a battle to the death, he, of course, naturally, once again, thinks about the time nexus that we're in now in this cave and how he knows that there are infinite variables that could tip the scales of the future of the outcome of this fight and how he can't see a clear path. This is a prescient blind spot. What a tense moment to realize that this is a battle to the death. I do not know how this is going to go. I do know the million different ways it could go. And a good portion of those million are me dead on the ground bleeding out. Damn. Yeah. I mean, Paul's having this revelation. I'm about to have to kill a man or be killed. Jameis is having a realization. Oh, damn. I picked a fight with this child. Yeah. And he cut my hand. (laughs) It hurt. Ow. That's not good. Ow. (laughs) God. I didn't know knives hurt. It was like the family guy joke. Anyway, uh, he becomes fearful and desperate. This is really, he's kind of feeling now like, oh man, I might lose this fight. Again, Dune is anime. This is the internal monologue. Yeah, hell yeah. We get some words from the late and great Duncan motherfucking Idaho regarding Jameis's fear and Paul recognizing Jameis's fear. Quote, when your opponent fears you, Then's the moment when you give the fear its own reign. Give it the time to work on him. Let it become terror. The terrified man fights himself. Eventually, he attacks in desperation. That is the most dangerous moment, but the terrified man can be trusted, usually, to make a fatal mistake. End quote. What a great lesson. Incredible stuff. And again, the litany against fear, (laughs) this tool Paul has from his mother's teachings, to talk himself away from that, you know, cliff's edge that is terror. Yeah. And to talk himself away from making fatal mistakes is the edge in every fight. It's just if there's any fear on the other person's side, Paul has the advantage. Yeah. What a superpower. Brilliant. This is incredible stuff. And also, again, yeah, it's an incredible lesson from who is clearly a good teacher or was. Rest <laughs> in peace, Duncan Idaho. Um, guess what? That's exactly what Jameis does. He leaps towards Paul in a desperate attack, and he tries kind of a fancy knife hand switcheroo, one of those tricksy things that Chani predicted beautifully. And he finds himself fucking dead. <laughs> he, uh, Paul catches him with his knife. Yeah. And just, I'm going to leave this one to you, but it's, God, I love this quote oh so much. Oh my God, much. it's so good. It's so, so good. Yeah. So Paul impales Jameis on the tip of his blade. And another iconic Duncan Idaho quote comes to mind. Quote, Killing with a point lacks artistry, but don't <laughs> let that hold your hand when the opening presents itself. And oh quote, Holy shit. <laughs> Holy shit. Lacks artistry. <laughs> oh my God. Remind me, never... To fuck with Duncan only kills with the blade Idaho. Oh my god. God. Also, there's that iconic moment that's in the Dune trailer of Jason Momoa peeling away from a Sardaukar with his 
what looks like a kinjal, or it's kind of like a machete-like blade, and he's just dragging the edge along the guy. Listen, that looks like a kill that's got artistry, folks. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's about the edge kills. So uh, there you go. It's kind of fun to to think about that. Any fight scenes we get to see in the movie with Momoa as Duncan Idaho, I'll be thinking about that for sure. I'll definitely lean over and go. <laughs> <laughs> he just killed with a point, and that lacks artistry. But I guess the the opening presented itself. So, uh, well played. <laughs> And the person next to us in the theater is going to be like, the fuck is wrong with I these guys? I don't know you. <laughs> Stop talking to me. All right, let's round out this takeaway and this scene. <laughs> because one final incredible thing takes place here. As the surrounding Fremen surge forward to collect Jameis's body and celebrate Paul's victories, many of them are in awe of Paul. Many of them are fearful. Many of them are confused. I mean... Is this the boy of legend that they've only ever heard about? Right. A lot of emotions running through the crowd. Jessica fights her way through the crowd to get to her son because she desperately needs to do something. Quote, now is the terrible moment, she thought. He has killed a man in clear superiority of mind and muscle. He must not grow to enjoy such a victory. End quote. Oh, I love incredible. it. Yes. Oh my God. I so love, love, love this. Yeah. Because think of how many of our favorite stories, even superhero stories that glorify good people like Captain America, are about killing. Right. Stories in which our heroes inevitably must kill or murder to continue their quest or whatever. So many stories glorify that act, glorify murder, and normalize it to some extent. But at the end of the day, it's a fucked up thing to do. Yeah. So it's so cool to see that in this book, in the harshest of environments, on a terrible planet, among an unknown people, against a seasoned Fremen fighter, Paul had to do this thing that was clearly self-defense. It was kill or be killed. Right. Fully right. justified by... Almost every ethical standard. Even in that moment, Jessica rushes forward and makes sure that he does not enjoy this too much. That he does not start to enjoy the thrill of a fight. Yeah. Or even start to like seek that high of getting a kill, of overcoming another person. It, it's amazing. It's beautiful writing. It's beautiful characterization. And it, again, speaks to the nuance of these characters. And Jessica immediately recognizing this moment in which Paul might be riding high, which he is. She walks up to him and he's kind of got this glow in his eyes and he's smiling and I'm sure the adrenaline is still pumping in his veins. Yeah. That's a moment where you got to bring someone down. They cannot come to enjoy that too much. And that's exactly what Jessica does. She rushes forward and hits him with an ultra scornful quote, well now, how does it feel to be a killer? End quote. Ugh. Right Killer. in the gut. Yeah. Right in the gut. From your mother, not from some adoring fan. Yeah. Uh, and that truly does bring him down to reality. He tells Stilgar a little later in the scene, quote, I wasn't playing with him. I did not want to kill him. End quote. What a scene. It also, I love that this is probably a lesson that Jessica was taught as a Benny Jesuit, right? 
as part of this mastery of emotion and the body, knowing that there is a thrill to mastering, to overcoming someone through superiority of mind and muscle, as she puts it. When she overcame Stilgar, I could imagine her having a moment of fleeting triumph, but we know now that this is a discipline that she has. You don't revel in that unnecessary violence, or you don't, you don't revel in, you don't glow with this <laughs> pride over defeating someone because that, again, I don't know, it weakens you or it shifts your moral compass or yeah. there are all sorts of terrible things that can happen if you, st if you go down that path. Really interesting stuff because, again, the first time I read this, I thought of this only as the lesson for Paul, but to think about it also as a lesson learned by Jessica, a lesson that she had been taught and is now teaching. That's a great point. Yeah. And those are our takeaways today. Just two of them. Takeaway one, the dream of green Arrakis, set forth by Pardo Kynes, continued by the Fremen in a fanatical religious belief in the future, in a brighter, greener future. And takeaway number two, an incredible knife fight that we can't wait to see on screen. Paul Atreides bests a Fremen warrior in combat. So now that we've talked about the major takeaways, we're going to dig into some delicious spice morsels. But before that, we are going to take one last break. So we'll be right back with a spice morsel all about hooks, makers, and riders. Ooh, what's that about? Stay tuned. Okay, so first up in our spice morsels deep cut lore is hooks, makers, and riders. What do these words mean? Yes. We heard them <laughs> what are multiple they? times throughout these pages. We learned in these chapters that the Fremen often refer to sandworms as makers. We heard in Pardo and Liet Kine's conversation a term called little makers. There are also a number of, frankly, not so subtle hints to the possibility that Fremen are able to ride worms what? through the use of something called maker hooks. As Liet lays dying in the desert, quote, a worm, Kynes thought, with a surge of hope. A maker's sure to come when this bubble bursts. But I have no hooks. How can I mount a big maker without hooks? End quote. Our first little hint that, wait a second, you can ride worms? Yeah. And then moving on later, as Jessica and Stilgar are looking out from the Cave of Ridges, Stilgar says, quote, It would be better to ride but we cannot permit a maker into this basin. Thus, we must walk again tonight. End quote. <laughs> yeah. And understandably, Jessica's like, say again? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what did you just say? What? <laughs> <laughs> quote, she measured the import of his words, the statement that they could not permit a worm into this basin. She knew what she had seen in the mirage. Fremen, riding on the back of a giant worm. It took heavy control not to betray her shock at the implications. Wow. <laughs> She's like, fucking what? I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Again, <laughs> to continue our T-Rex metaphor from the previous <laughs> chapter, <laughs> imagine you're at Jurassic Park and you see the park rangers who you thought just watered the plants <laughs> riding around on a T-Rex. Yeah. Incredible. So now we know that the Fremen ride worms as a means of transport in the deep desert. 
Amazing. Just wild. The next bit we've got, the next morsel. Let's dig in. Molopistol. So, molopistols are formally introduced to us in these chapters. One of the very few projectile weapons in Dune. Again, super, uh, super rare stuff. Mostly people are using swords and knives. From the terminology of the Imperium, quote, spring-loaded gun for firing poison darts, range about 40 meters. It's mentioned here, you know, we talk about shields, personal shields being a deterrent for using any kind of projectile weapons. It's noted that a skilled enough wielder could use a mala pistol against a shield. I guess you like, I don't know, arc the dart somehow. And I don't know, I, it, it's a little hard to picture, but somehow you shoot it in a way that slows the momentum. That being said, where shields summon giant murder worms, something like a mala <laughs> pistol is pretty fantastic because no one's using shields out in the desert. From the encyclopedia, we have some more depth about the mala pistol, and I love giving this kind of uh, deep lore stuff, so let's talk about it. The mala pistol was popular for assassins and guerrilla fighters for its size, it's small, and its weight, which it's light. Also, they don't really make a ton of sound on firing, which is a nice plus if you're trying to kill someone quietly. So the approximate size was, and this is baffling, and I almost think that this has got to be variable because this is very small. Approximate size, according to the encyclopedia, 15 centimeters from the back of the grip to the muzzle. That's so small with a weight of 125 to 150 grams. Guys, for reference, I have an apple in my fridge. I weighed it because I don't know what grams are. I'm not a science man. The apple in my fridge is 225 grams. Uh. <laughs> so either I have a huge apple in my fridge or this is a very small device. <laughs> you decide. They were invented in the year 3741 AG. It's about 7,000 years before the beginning of Dune. But it wasn't until over 4,000 years later, in the years, uh, it's, it's approximately the 7,000s, that modern mala pistols made it off-planet to interplanetary markets. Our next spice morsel is Amtal rule. We heard Jameis invoke this rule in the Cave of Ridges when he challenges Paul. Quote, It is Amtal rule, Stogar said. Jameis is demanding the right to test your part in the legend. End quote. Okay, so the Fremen are throwing this term out, but no one is explaining what that means. Let us explain for you. From the terminology of the Imperium at the end of the book, Amtal rule is, quote, a common rule on primitive worlds under which something is tested to determine its limits or defects, commonly testing to destruction, end quote. Love it. Now, we've been harping a lot about core themes in the Dune universe, central ideas in the Dune saga, this is another one. The idea that to fully know a thing, it must be pushed to the breaking point. This idea that adversity can lead to growth and understanding of the truth. This rule can apply to a lot of things. It can apply to people, to concepts, right. to governments, or specifically here in the Cave of Ridges in this case, to legends, to this idea that Paul and Jessica are the legendary heroes of myth in Fremen culture, Jameis is invoking Amtal, is invoking his right to test that legend, 
to push it to the breaking point. And if the legend is true, then Paul will survive. If it is not, then it will have been pushed to the breaking point and it will have broken. And we will know the truth. What's going to say? Can't be the chosen one if he's fucking dead. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you got to respect Jameis's logic here. <laughs> I'm going to fight the main character to make sure he's the main character. <laughs> Take one for the team. <laughs> we actually dedicated an entire episode to this very idea, to the Amtal rule, to the theme in the Dune saga of pushing things to their limit and adversity being core to growth. So we highly recommend you check that episode out. We actually had a guest, the amazing Elaine from the Nerd Cookies YouTube channel. It was an incredible discussion. So be sure to check that out if you want to learn more. Quick caveat, that is a spoiler episode. So proceed with caution. Indeed. The final delicious little morsel that we're going to dig into here is Adab. This is something I definitely 100% missed on my first read-through. I was just like, oh, fun word, and then I moved on. But <laughs> it's absolutely incredible, and it deserves a minute or two, and probably a much larger amount of time later. But let's talk about it quickly here. In the Cave of Ridges, Jessica having her little parlay with Stilgar while Paul is going into a time trance. Uh, Jessica whispers a dab, and here's the quote. Her mind felt as though it had rolled over within her. She recognized the sensation with a quickening of pulse. Nothing in all the Bene Gesserit training carried such a signal of recognition. It could only be the adab, the demanding memory that comes upon you of itself. She gave herself up to it, allowing the words to flow from her. End quote. The idea of the mind turning within itself uh. is so... Love it. Again, this is great poetry. But... Basically, the general sense is that this is kind of a self-triggering word, like a trance word or something, or something that just happens to her. The encyclopedia explains a little bit further. Quote, Adab is a retrieval process accessible to all skilled Bene Gesserits. This state of recall is also called the demanding memory, a recollection of necessary data stimulated externally or by the gestalt of a situation rather than being triggered consciously by the woman herself. And a little further on, Adab not only stores material in the subconscious, it also uses the subconscious to integrate new, with stored data, thus producing completely accurate and logically assimilated memory, a memory so strong that when stimulated, it will overwhelm the woman's consciousness. End quote. <laughs> Woof. All right. Layman's terms. <laughs> After thinking about it for way too long, what I've decided is that this is what that means. She uses this whispered phrase, adab, to turn over her conscious control into a cocktail of instincts, subconscious, and decades of training and memorization and studying. Wow. Ugh. Wow. So cool. And I Definitely could have used a dub during my Japanese classes in college. Lord, <laughs> where was my demanding memory then? All right. Yes. Oh my gosh. Through most of college. I need it. Damn. <laughs> uh, Sitting in the exam room, like whispering a top, 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 fucking a top, a top. Is it like Wingardium Leviosa? A dub. A dub. 
I don't know. Yeah. Damn it. Uh, what an incredible peek into yet another amazing Benny Jesuit power. Yeah. Incredible. All right, Leo. That did it. Book Club it. 5 has come to a close. Woo! <laughs> we made it. We made it. Uh, shorter number of pages. Still somehow a marathon, but what a blast. <laughs> so much fun to get through it all. And also, again, like four or five incredibly iconic moments in these last 80 pages. Right. So really rich stuff. And we are not resting. No. Nope. We have done our one day of, of camping at the basin, and now we are going to set forth into the into the desert sands and make sure that if you're going to join us on this journey, you've read up through page, wait for it, 603, up to the sentence, but I'll not always need you, and someday, end quote. There are, are ellipses. In this. <laughs> I'm hanging part. on the edge of my seat here. Someday what? Someday what? <laughs> Probably, I don't know, poison? Something. <laughs> I don't know. It's Dune. Adob, adob. 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 <laughs> Come on. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. Welcome to... Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to... Wow, okay. Reading. (laughs) Welcome to... (laughs) (laughs) There's our end of episode blooper right there. I know. Jesus. Amazing. Uh, welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide. To, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune.